Can we give a warm welcome to Seth Freeman? That's great, John. Okay. So like John's, is this, can everybody hear me okay? It's loud enough? Okay. Like John was saying, he's been asking me to do this for years, it seems like, for a long time. And I have promptly turned him down every time because the act of doing this, in my eyes, is terrifying. I don't know about the rest of you. I do not like to be here. So, here I am. Uh, somewhat in obedience to John and maybe in obedience to the Lord. It's a little bit of both, probably, you know, but that's where we're starting. Okay. So I figured I might as well introduce myself. John kind of did that already. Um, But before I do, I want to tell you this exciting subject that I'm talking about today. We're going to be talking about the Navy. Um, It's crazy that it actually happened this way, but yeah, I didn't know I was going to be talking about the Navy until Ron brought that up, and this is going to be really interesting. No, I'm going to be talking about love, but... um, First thing I want to do is introduce myself. A lot of you all might see me sitting over on this right side of the church. This is where I sit. I sit on that side. And I sit on the end of the row um, because that's where I want to be. I want to be in the same spot, about five or six rows back, not too close to John so you can stare at me. Um, yeah. And also, I'm gonna, I told Kat I'd tell this pet peeve. Um, it seems like every time I sit, somebody is in front of me, and they sit down during worship. And this drives me crazy. Because their, their head is right next to me while I'm singing. And I'm very self-conscious about singing. So, it's like, I'm, I stand there, and I'm singing, and then they sit right in front of me. And it's like, ah, oh, this happens all the time. So maybe the Lord's telling me to change seats. I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> So I've been married for 18 years to my wonderful wife, Kate. Um, she's the organized one. She's the one that sat down with me last night. and I had it all scribbled out my, on my little notepad. She's like, we should, we should type this up. And I'm like, I can't, I can't really type. Uh, she's like, I'll type. So we spent a long time doing this last night. Um, we have four children, sometimes wonderful children. My eldest is... <laughs> Noah, he's looking down right now because he, he can't look up. Hi, Noah. Noah. There he is. Ethan. Uh, so Noah's 14. Ethan's 12. Uh, Samuel is in the 8-year-old class that way. And Olivia is 6. Uh, I have been a Christian for over 30 years. And writing that down, it sounds ridiculous. But it's true. Um, as far as I know and I believe, I became a Christian when I was 7 years old. Um, I do come from a broken household. I uh, was raised mostly by my father, who raised me as a Christian. My mother at the time was not a Christian, but about is it two years ago now, Josh, two years ago, she just had this huge revolutionary change and came back. So after all of these are praying, Mama's back. Um, I told, in case that I shouldn't say this, but I was double baptized. So I got, I got baptized at seven and then decided, well, I need to do it again. So I did it again at 16 when I kind of understood baptism a little bit more. But if you got baptized at five or seven, you know, it's all right. You don't have to be double baptized like me. Um, so that's kind of me in a nutshell, just so you all are aware. Um, I also debated wearing this hat up front, but, you know, I'm bald. So um, 
I look at it as kind of a modern wig. It, it is, you know, it is what it is. Um, so that's me, and I want to give you I want to give you a statement of my beliefs. So this one's going to go up on the overhead, um, just so you know that where I'm coming from. That uh, hopefully I believe closely to what you believe. And this is from one of my my favorite singers and one of his my favorite songs that he sings. It's uh, Rich Mullins. Um, who is just he writes amazing lyrics. Now he didn't necessarily write all these lyrics. These re- lyrics are from the old Apostles' Creed, which was from like 390 A.D. So it's from it goes pretty far back in church history. And some people even believe that, you know, each one of the apostles took a little piece of this and put their own thoughts in. And he's like, well, you know, I'll do this and I'll do it. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But anyways, I'm going to read this because I want to. So I believe in God, the father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth. And Jesus Christ His only begotten son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And I believe, and this is a little bit repetitive, but it's okay. I believe that he who suffered was crucified, buried, and dead. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven, where he sits at God's mighty right hand. And I believe that he's returning to judge the quick and the dead and the sons of men. And then at the end, it's... um, Again, he goes to, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of Heaven and Maker of Earth. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in a life that never ends. And he goes through, it's it's just a great song. And he goes through all this and then kind of finishes and says, I believe what I believe and it's what makes me what I am. And this, this idea is foundational to me. I didn't, I don't make any of this. And in and, and the song, he keeps going on. He's like, it's, it's making me. It makes you who you are, and it's making you who you are. So, anyways, that's, that's a, a steal from Rich Mullins uh, on a statement of my beliefs. Uh, there's a second quote from one of my old favorite singers as well, um, which we can put up there. And I love this quote. This is Keith Green. Um, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Um, I don't really know how that relates to any of this, but it's Keith Green in a nutshell. Okay. So, no, I'm not talking about the Navy. Um, I, I did want to mention this. These two singers, they're my favorites of all time, Christian-wise. They're from way back. They both died at a young age, tragically. It's, it's crazy what happened with them. Um, and they both, when I look back after I wrote all this down, I was like, they both represent, in some fashion, these two characters that I'm about to bring out, um, where Rich Mullen seems to represent Peter. I'm sorry, not Peter. John and uh, Keith Green, Peter. But we'll look back. We'll look at that in a second. So I'm going to start here. The first verse that I want to look at. And this is going to kind of be the foundational verse for what I'm going to be talking about today. And it's in first John four four ten. So if you got some, I'll give you a second to look that up. I think it's on the screen. Is it on the screen? It is on the screen. OK. Okay, I'm starting whether you're there or not. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, this is, this is everything. This is the nutshell 
of the Christian experience as far as I'm concerned. But before I get started, I want to pray. So, Lord, I just pray that uh, you'd give me wisdom to speak what you want me to speak and give us all ears to hear and hearts to understand. Uh, change us in whatever way you need to change us today, Lord, and free us up. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, this verse really brings us back to the foundation of what love is. And it's sometimes scary to talk about love, especially in this church, because we kind of we kind of talk about it a lot. Um, but I don't want it to get lost. I think love gets lost sometimes. And what I mean by that is, in our society as a whole right now, love is is an operative word in everything we're doing. I mean, we love hot dogs. We love each other. We love our, our animals. We love ice cream. Um, you know, love has really been kind of watered down in a sense. Um, I don't know if any of you all see that. but um, And then on top of that, it's like, you don't really love me unless you accept everything I decide to do in every part of my life. And now it kind of they're using love to take people hostage. And these aren't good things, you know. I also think love in, in, in my, my thought process through the years in the church has been misrepresented. And I'm going to give an idea of what I mean by that in a few minutes. Um, one of these misrepresentations, although I want to kind of spin into this, um, is the Bible gives us a lot of oughts. It says, you know, you ought to do this. You ought. There's a lot of commandments for the Christian, the Christian person specifically, that we should, we should be following. I think sometimes we get these oughts mixed up with the imperative. And the imperative we're going to keep driving back to is 1 John 4.10. This is love. I think this, this idea is so key and so foundational. We need to keep driving back to that. And if we don't, we start ending up on the wrong path. Um, I think C.S. Lewis is the one that said, you know, if you start off a very large sum and it's very simple in the beginning, say it's one plus two equals and then you go on to division and then trigonometry or however that sum works out. If you didn't get one plus two right, you didn't get the answer. And it could be the easiest thing of all. And I think that's something that we have to keep driving back and focusing ourselves on. Um, so these are things that I think, these are good things for the most part, but they take away from our focus of what our foundation is. Uh, being a good person and following the law, doing what's right, I don't think that's our foundation. Loving my wife, which I should be doing, right? That is not my foundation. Training my children up in the way they should go, not my foundation. My profession, my job security, money, no. My possessions in my home or my creature comforts, those aren't my foundation. My emotions, how do I feel and react about what I see, about what people are doing around me? That's not my foundation. Um, my habits, both good and bad, they're not my foundation. And then even beyond all that, my past. Who raised me? What happened in my life? You know, and then all, all the, the baggage that that can carry. That's not my foundation. My future. 
how I think things are going to turn out. How am I, how do I look at, you know, what are my kids going to be doing? They're going to be going to college or Kate and I are going to be moving and getting a house by the ocean. You know, you know, these things, these, these aren't our, this is not my foundation. Now, I don't want to diminish these things. These things are all important. They're all good. They're all oughts that the Bible tells us to follow. But they are not the ultimate imperative. Okay? So, what brought all this up, these thoughts to me, is um, one day Josh and I, my brother Josh, he's sitting back there by Ron and Lee. We were driving um, to Georgia. And we take our boys to my parents' house in the summer for a week every year. And my parents spoil them and let them stay up real late and play video games a lot. And usually our boys come back, you know, a little surly maybe. Yeah. But happy. I mean, they have a great time. Um, and so we have a couple hours in the car together. And Josh and I are talking about just normal stuff, our lives, our wives, our kids. And in a lot of ways, we're talking about things that we're, we're struggling with. It's like, what do we do with this? What do we do with that? And And then... We both kind of gave each other an answer, I think, that was similar. He's like, well, I was like, I can't remember which one of us said this first. And Josh and I talked about this on Saturday, but I was like, where did you hear that from? That's different. And, and I kind of was thinking, I, I just heard this, this message earlier. And now don't let this message, this idea get lost, but this is, this is where I want to go with this. And the gist of this message was boasting of your love for God versus boasting of God's love for you. Now, when I look at that, this thought, it just it revolutionized the way I look at my relationship with the Lord. This was like, as we're, we're driving around and stuff, and, and, you know, Josh and I were going back and forth, it's like, this is a, a paradigm shift. This is like, whoosh, it was a complete flip-flop. And maybe you all have gotten there before, and bless the Lord that you have. I'd been a Christian at that point for 25 years. And a lot of times just frustrated, like, am I, am I moving forward? Or why do I keep spinning my wheels? What do I have to do to feel like I'm pleasing the Lord, you know? And, uh, you know, when we start feeling that way, it just seems like, it just gets drowned in a thousand different qualifications. It's like, well, you know, I, I read my Bible for 15 minutes, and then I prayed a little bit. Well, you should be praying a little bit more, and you should be reading your Bible for a little bit more. And it's like, is that really where the Lord wants us to be going? And so I want to bring up this, this story in the Bible to kind of to get this a little bit more clear, because I don't want this to get lost. This is, this is so revolutionary to me. But the first thing I want to do before I get into that is I think sometimes we hear love and we hear these quote-unquote basics of Christianity. We want to hear this deep stuff that no one's spoken about before that's just like, oh yeah, I got that little nugget. Um, And Jesus is talking to Pilate. And so they're going through what's going to happen and uh, just kind of going on back and forth conversation. And Jesus says to Pilate, Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And this is like, I asked Kate, because I really don't understand what irony means. But I'm like, Kate, is this an ironic statement? And she's like, ah, I think so. Um, but Pilate responds, and he looks at Jesus in the face. Now, 
here, I'm in the face. Here's Jesus, the fulfillment of grace and truth, standing in front of this man, physically. This isn't like he's reading his Bible and like, uh, he's, they're having a conversation. And Jesus tells him to his face, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? And he walks away. I mean, a lot of us, I think, would be like, if I was in that position, I would know. And, and even a better, a better question I think Pilate would have had is, who is truth, you know? But he didn't even get that beginning part. Um, I think a lot of us do that with God's love. I think we go through our Bible. We go through the ins and outs of our lives. We go through what is required of us. What are we supposed to be doing? What is God doing in my life? And we look all of that face to face and say, what is love? And we don't wait for an answer. It just... And I think we just kind of... We lose focus of what we need to be focused on. So, there's two men in the Bible that we're going to be doing a compare and contrast. And it's Peter. Now, Peter is the dude that boasts of his love for the Lord. We're going to call that demand. And then there's John. And John boasts of the Lord's love for him. We're going to call that supply. Um, so, reading the, reading the Gospels, um, I don't know if you all have ever done this, but there's a couple times where there's this, there's this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't know if anybody's ever noticed that. Um, but it's funny because it's like, that's about as conceited as you can be, you know? You, you can't say that. What, what are you trying to do? Um, the truth is, though, John's writing this gospel, and he's, most people think he's in his 80s when he's writing the gospel of John. He's an old man looking back now. He's not, like, writing it as it's all happening, you know? So he's looking back at this past experiences with Jesus, this walk on earth he's had with him. And he's thinking, what really sticks out? What is, what is the main focus of all this? And the fact that he says this four times and can say it without sounding arrogant. I mean, this is a man that lived and walked and, and did so much with the Lord that he can say that without arrogance, that he can boast in this. Because you can. You can boast in and everything that the Lord is. And that's the great thing about it. There's another side to all that, though. And there's Peter. Um, Peter is like most of us. And he's all about doing for the Lord. And I don't want to get too messy with this. Because we can do things for the Lord. We can. It's okay. But we've got, we, we got to get that we got to get that straight in our heads, which comes first. And if it's coming from me wanting to do and me wanting to please, it's not going to work. So here's Peter. He's, he's like, you know, he's proud of, of his doing for the Lord, and it's pretty apparent. At the Last Supper, you know, Jesus is going through all this stuff with these guys and just talking about what's going to happen. I'm not sure they really got where he, where he was going with all this. Uh, but he does mention, he's like, you know, you're all going to fall away in account of me. And Peter's like, I can just see Peter standing up and he's like, even if all these guys fall away, not me, I'll die with you. And 
that sounds awesome to me. I mean, to make that proclamation, that commitment, I'll die for you, Lord. Um, I believe Pete was honest. I think there's a lot of people that think maybe he didn't know what he was talking about. He ended up being cowardly. But here's what I believe. I believe that he sincerely loved the Lord with all his heart or most of his heart. You know, we kind of get caught up right in this in this thing of, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. And this sounds troublesome to me and maybe to some of you, but that verse was meant to show us up. We cannot love the Lord with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength. I can't love the Lord with all my mind for five minutes. I mean, if you can get ten minutes, you're you got something going. Uh, So, yes, I believe that Peter would have done whatever needed whatever he needed to do to be there for Jesus. But is that what the Lord's looking for? Is he looking for us to be there for him? I'm not so sure. So he makes this proclamation. He walks. I don't know what he did after he sauntered off. And Jesus does make this this last thing. And he's like, oh, just to clarify, there's a new commandment. And uh, and it's this love one another. And they're all kind of this is something that we've done in our home group before. And they're kind of like, look, that that's not new. Love one another. Uh, how is that a new commandment? We've been talking about this for a long time. But then he clarifies. And, and before he says all that, he says this. Now I call you friends. And I think this is an important I, this is an important issue to grasp. He calls, now I call you friends. Love one another. Okay, great. And then he says this to add a little clarity to that. As I have loved you, now you go. And so what does he do there? He, he puts all the pressure back on himself. Don't go, you know, as I have loved you. And these are huge words. This is Jesus at celebrating their last Passover. He's already taken this thing, this is a Jewish tradition, and made it all about him. So the disciples are probably a little uncomfortable at this point. They're like, you know, this Passover thing, and you're all talking about Jesus the whole time. And then he's going and making new commandments. God's the only one that makes commandments. And so I think maybe these guys are thinking, this is a little confusing, you know, what's happening here? Anyways, so that all happens, and Peter hears all this. And the first thing he does is discount it. Because then Jesus says, I'm going somewhere, and where I'm going, you can't come. And, and Peter doesn't even respond to the love part. He's just like, well, where are you going? You know, it's like, I want to follow you. I want to be your man. I want to. And he kind of misses the whole thing, which is what I think we do so much. We just miss the whole thing by trying to be God's man. So they finish supper and they go into the garden. Um, and Jesus goes and prays and all the disciples do what I would have done. And they, they fall asleep. Um, and Jesus comes and yells at him a couple times, and they wake up, and they fall asleep again. And they go through the whole, the whole deal in the garden. I'm not going to get into that too much. Um, and now Jesus knows that these guys are coming to arrest him. He's aware of the whole situation. Uh, I've always heard, I've heard this one thing about Jesus is great. He's like, he was never in a hurry. You never see Jesus running to a different place or running here. He just, he just walked everywhere. Because he was always in God's will. He was never, like, doing his own thing. 
And so he's, he's hanging out, and he knows these guys are coming to arrest. And so I want to make this, this scene uh, kind of clear if I can. So there's the sleepy disciples and Jesus in a garden. And there's a bunch of people coming with swords and clubs to arrest him. And it's not, it's not a little bit. I mean, they, they, they call this, this, um, this area would have had what they call a cohort of soldiers, about 600 of them. And they're Roman soldiers, so these guys know how to do battle. Um, in addition, they would have the temple guard who, would, you know, they come and kind of work out the, the Jewish stuff that's happening. And, and, you know, but I'm not sure they're allowed to carry swords or anything. You know, the swords are really meant for the Romans who are in charge of everything. And so we're in Peter's shoes now, right? He's standing here looking. And let's just say there's not 600, but there's 200 Roman soldiers that appear with all the temple guards, the priest servants there, Judas is there. And what's going through Peter's mind right now? Um, and this is this is this part's great. So Jesus is already in total control of the whole situation. And he he stops them all. He's like, "Who is it that you want?" And uh, they replied, "Jesus of Nazareth." And this is this is great. He replies, I am he. And the I am is, you know, the, the name of God. And when he says, I am he, they says they all draw back and fall to the ground. Yeah. I mean, you're talking a couple hundred people possibly just, you know, it's like it's like one of those Marvel comics. It's, you know, boom, they all go down and then they all get back up. And it's like, I don't know what Jesus is doing. If he's just standing there just waiting and they all get back up and he's looking around, you know, and well, I don't know what Peter's doing. Did he fall too? I don't know. I don't know what the disciples were doing, but um, they all stand back up. And then he says it again. He's like, who are you looking for? And I'm, I wonder, you know, when they, they, they just said it again. They're like, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> and he says, I am he again. Now, I heard someone say somewhere that he, they fell down twice. I couldn't find that. But anyways, Peter's looking on and he sees all this. He sees this awesome display of God. And he's seen the displays of God's power, God's power for the past three years. He's been walking this walk and talking this talk with Jesus. And he's still not getting it. And we all look back at Peter and we say, why couldn't he just get it? Why couldn't? Because most of us, I don't think, can get it in, in, in all the messiness and hardship and questions of life. We really, it's really hard to get it, to, to let go of what we think we ought to do and to say, Lord, I know that you love me and that's really, really, truly all that I need. So, Jesus is standing there. He's knocked everybody down. They're back up. And then this, this is a crazy thing that happens. This thing has always hit me and it's never, it's never made much sense to me. But Lee, Eurydia, and I were talking about this uh, about a month ago. The soldiers go to arrest Jesus. So after all that said and done, they're still like, you're coming with us. I don't, well, I don't know if we're in charge or not, but, you know, this is what we're going to do. And one of the guys goes and grabs Jesus' arm, and they're fixing to arrest Jesus. And for Peter, Peter's looking back, and he's like, now, the disciples, for some reason, have two swords. You know, Jesus is like, someone can explain this to me later on but jesus is like you know if you have this or have that go 
Lord, we got two swords. That's enough. I don't know why all that happened. John, you can explain it one Sunday. <laughs> but of course, Jesus or Peter ends up with one of the two swords. I liken it to my, my family. If, if there was some weaponry in my house, no, well, Josh, Josh probably would. He would have already had it. But Ethan would end up with both knives. He'd be like, eh, I got it. We all need something. You know, that's just the way it would work out. And Peter goes, and he's like, it's go time. I can just see him. You know, he's like, I've got this ultimate power. He can feed us. He can knock people down. He can raise people from the dead. And we're on a team, me and Jesus. And all these other guys back behind me, you know, they don't have their swords. So I'm here to help. And Jesus is being arrested. What's going on? I thought knocking him down meant we were going to fight. What was happening? So he grabs the sword and he, and he lops off the ear um, of, of the, the guy that's grabbing. And they actually give his name in the Bible, but I don't have that here. Now, this is, this is such a moment. Uh, and again, this is what Lee and I were talking about a couple, a couple of weeks back or a month ago. This is such a moment of tension. This is an amazing moment that I think we miss sometimes, or I've missed it for years, maybe you all have gotten it, where there's this, there's this incredible sovereignty of God's will moving forward. And God's will right now is, Jesus is going to the cross. This thing is happening. And then there's Peter's will. And Peter understands some of it. He understands a little bit of the love and the sacrifice but he's still kind of dependent on himself. Like, well, if Jesus isn't going to knock him down, I'm going to start slicing. And, you know, he cuts this guy's ear off. And this is that, that tension where all this is coming together in this one moment. And Jesus just diffuses everything. And he picks the guy's ear up and he places it back on his head and he heals him. What does Peter do with that? And what do we do when suddenly Jesus takes a right turn or something happens in our life and we're like, what? We were on a team. We were doing good. We were, we, I, wasn't, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was trying to follow you. I was trying to do my best for you. And all this weirdness is happening. Where do I go with this? And I think this is where Peter just gets disillusioned you know he did love the lord he really did um and then he goes and he just denies him and he doesn't just deny him he denies him three times and he just doesn't deny him three times he denies him with cursing and swearing i mean it's like whoo you know and he's a fisherman so i'm i'm sure he knows how to curse and swear just fine um There we go. Navy. We got it in. So Jesus is there and he says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? I'm kind of going back a little bit here. but This is the moment when I think Peter's world falls apart, where disillusionment sets in. And I think disillusionment will ultimately always settle in. When we're depending on our love for him instead of his love for us. Because our love isn't enough. 
It's just not. And if, if we can't get around that, that issue, we can't start that sum off right. You know, we, the one plus two, if we're saying four, it's not going to work. So, before I go further with Peter, I want to go back to John. Because John is the guy boasting of the Lord's love for him. And this is very interesting. Where does he end up in all this? You know, Peter's running away and denying all the disciples are they're gone. And it seems like John's gone too. I mean, where did he go? So Jesus is at the cross now. And it's, it's getting near the end. And guess who's sitting at the foot of the cross? John. And it's crazy. It's like this guy... He didn't need to do anything for him. But all he did was boast of the Lord's love for him. And guess where he ended up? In the right place, at the right time, serving at the foot of the cross. That's amazing. How, how do I worry about ending up at the right place at the right time? How, there's so many things in life that we can just analyze to the nth degree and worry over but we got to do the one thing first. Um, I didn't have this in my notes, but it's kind of like the Mary. I love the Mary Martha story. It's such a good story. And Martha is out cooking and doing the right thing. There's people at her house. Someone needs to be getting things ready. And then there's Mary, and she's sitting at the foot of Jesus worshiping. And Martha comes out and basically looks at both her and Jesus. She's like, blaming both of them. She's like, she should be back helping me. She's sitting over here doing nothing. And now Jesus, now this is important though, he doesn't, he doesn't chide her about doing what she, sh- she didn't, he didn't say, well, you should, you should stop cooking and cleaning and you should come over here and worship too. He never says that to her. But he does say this, he's like, you know, she does the one, there's only one thing, your heart is worried about many, many things. But one thing, how many things? One thing is required, and she's chosen it. And we get that chance to choose all the time. We get the chance to choose that one thing. Whether it is going out and serving someone, if we choose that one thing first, he's going to meet us there. You know, whether it's me loving my wife, I can't really love Kate unless I, I know his love for me. I don't have that much to give. She knows that, you know. I mean, I can barely keep up a conversation when I get home from work. Um, so, yes, John, John, the bolster of God's love for him, again, he ends up at the right time, right place. How many other people are at the foot of the cross? And then he's like, and Jesus is like, hey, you're taking care of my mom. He's got all these other brothers and sisters, and somehow he goes to John. He's like, this is your son, this is your mother. It's really crazy. Um, so there, there's where the guy was boasting of, his love for, or boasting of the Lord's love for him. The good news for Peter and all of us is that our God is a God of restoration. And his restoration always exceeds what we thought we lost. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, so I'm going to go over to John, and you, can, you all can go with me. John 21, 15 to 17. And Kate put all these sticky notes in my Bible so I could find them quick. Thank you, sweetie. 
Okay. So what verses did I say? Thanks. All right. Anyway, just to give it a little bit, because the verse starts off when they'd finished eating, which I find enormously helpful because Jesus comes and he just shows up on the shore and he's like, hey, throw your net over here. And they get all these fish and and Peter who's already been restored. There's there's some verse about him, you know, being it says the disciples and Peter, Jesus met with them. So he's already had some restoration at some point personally with Jesus. And the reason you could tell is because before when he meets Jesus for the first time and, and he gets that boatload of fish, you know, he gets on his knees and says, you know, I'm not worthy. Now, this time he gets that boatload of fish and Peter is like, or I think John says it, right? John says, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps and runs to the Lord. You know, after all that's happened, after the denials and, and, and the questioning of where my allegiance is, the Lord's restoration comes through. And also, I'm going to add this because I think it's really cool. Um, so there's a fire of burning coals. This is very interesting. There's only two times that I know of in the scriptures that the Bible talks about these burning coals. One of them is when all the guys are getting ready and they're figuring out Jesus' trial. And Peter's, you know, they're warming themselves around these burning coals. This is the, one, the, the other time that the Bible describes these burning coals. And then they bring it back. And the only other time that this, this specific wording is used is for these burning coals that Jesus has prepared to cook the fish. Well, you can you can do whatever you want with that, but I just think the redemption involved here is so layered. You know, it's like I'm even going to take your senses and redeem them, and that smell that where you you might have thought if I smell those coals again when I was denying Jesus, it's just going to make me sick. He even redeems that and is like I'm going to cook you breakfast with that smell. You know, um, and so that's what he does. Jesus he cooks for him. Okay. Um, When they'd finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Um, And this is where he is just breaking it down for for Peter. When he says love here, the Greek for this word love, when he asks him this, is agape love. Agape love. Where did I write that? Is selfish, I'm sorry, selfish, selfish, sacrificial, unconditional love. It is the God type love. It's how God loves us. It's the highest form of love. There are many forms of love. This one is the form. Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Except Peter doesn't say agape love. Before he's like, you know, he's boasting of all this stuff he wants to do for the Lord. Now Peter's realized something, and it took a lot of heartache to realize this. He says phileo love. Now, phileo love is friendship or shared goodwill. It's a lower form of love. Jesus says, feed my lambs. I love this, that, you know, before I wanted to bring back the food, feed my lambs. Before he asks us to do anything, he's going to put it in us. So he feeds these guys, and then he comes back and says to them, now feed my lambs. It's just, there's so much layer of all this. It's just, it's really pretty. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Again, agape love. 
Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength? And uh, he answers, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, phileo love. So we're, we're having this little battle, this little back and forth. And Jesus is trying to make a point here. So Peter's hurt. I'm sorry, the third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now this time, he doesn't say agape love. He says phileo love. And Peter's hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he's like, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo love you. So now they've hit the crux of the matter. And I think this is where Peter's real restoration happens. Is this realization at the end of everything, Jesus comes back. And again, another layer to all this is, you know, Peter denies him three times. And then three times Jesus comes back and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, there's the coals, there's the fish, there's the three times. And he's beating something into Peter's head here. Something that John has known for a long, long time. And that is basically that, you know, Peter's love is not enough. It's never going to be enough. You have to have full dependence on me. That's what Jesus is saying here. Peter's restored. At this point, I believe he's restored. And again, God's restoration is always greater than the perceived loss. Whatever you think you've lost, if you give it back to him, his restoration is going to beat it every time. The hard part is giving it back to him because we do want to hold on to these things. And he just comes over and he, you know, he lifts Peter, basically, just lifts him up out of this life of demand, this life of to-dos, this life of servitude, and sets him firmly into a life of sonship. It's a whole different way of looking at the Lord. We can serve him all we want, but he's not asking us to. He's asking us to be sons. Um, there's a quote that I like that kind of goes along with this. Um, forget who wrote it. I think it was Lee Strobel. You know, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make dead men live. And it's like, he's not trying to make us better people. He's trying to make us live. And there's so much we have to work through. And it's okay. It's, it's, it's fine. And then he restores Peter, and he says, follow me. You know, it's funny, though. The first thing Peter does, he's like, what about him? He's like, come on, Peter. What's going on, man? And, you know, Josh and I were talking about this yesterday at breakfast, and, and Jesus goes and tells Peter about, you know, what his death is going to be like. And Josh had this, like, super amazing thing and how it all tied together. And I was like, yeah, that's good. I don't remember it, but it was good. <laughs> so, the title of this message, you know, John asked me to do something about, if I could, about body life. Body life, to me, has always been a mystery. This idea of the church, this idea of all of us getting together. I think sometimes you can look at it and just... It's boring. I don't want to be there. What good is it? 
or he'd be, I'm not getting fed, or whatever the case may be, you know. Um, so I want to go back to how this all relates to the church. So we're going to go to Ephesians 3.17. And, um, you know, we've been studying Ephesians. Or we, we had studied Ephesians for two and a half years. It was a long, long time. It was really good. I was like, I'm not sure we should be done yet. We should probably study a little bit. But, you know, Tommy really wanted to press forward, and he was in a rush. So two and a half years <laughs> is what it ended up being. And I don't know about all of you, but there are scriptures. I've read the Bible a good number of times. My parents made me memorize scripture when I was young. I don't remember any of it, but that's okay. It's okay. Um, mm. But sometimes you read a scripture... And you read it one way a dozen times. And then the 13th time you read it, and it's like, where did that come from? So this is that scripture. This is Ephesians 3.17. And I'm going to go about halfway through here. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, so we've got that starting point, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and, and I'm sorry, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, this hit home for a couple reasons. We, we've been talking about this commitment thing. Phil, Phil Woody preached about this, um, I think it was two weeks ago. And we've been talking about this in our old man group. I'm sorry to call it old man group, but I'm part, I'm part of that group. And kind of going back and forth, like, oh, it's commitment. Don't tell me to be committed. You know, I'm, if I'm only really committed, if, you know, I'm really all in. And there's other people like, well, I'm committed because I should be committed, you know. And it's the right thing to do. He's asking me to do it. I'm going to do it. Those things are all fine. Again, I'm, I'm both of those two. But there's this, there's this belief, I think, that undergirds that commitment. It's not just about me putting myself forward and be like, I'm going to come here because I should be here. It's about believing that I can't understand everything about the Lord without all of you all. I can't do it. This this thing it says I've always been like, oh yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to grasp the 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 width and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. And this is what blew me away is like together with all the saints. Now, there are certain things we can do on our own. The Lord, the Lord can, can do a lot of work in us on our own. But this, 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 this idea that we can be a Lone Ranger Christian, that we can just continue doing our thing, the Lord talks to me, I'm good. So, this undergirds my commitment. It's not just about me pushing my, myself forward. It's like, I really believe what this says, that I can't know his love well enough on my own. And I think that's such a strong thing to remember. We're not just going to church, you know, and if we do go to church, you know, what Keith Green said, you know, it's not going to make us a Christian. But if we are Christians going to church, we are going to know him better. And I believe that. And that belief is freeing for me because there's so many years I was like, I don't want to go to church. Church is boring. It's really hard to stay awake sometimes, you know, and 
I really don't like small talk with a bunch of people that I only see once a week. But this, like, this establishes something for me. So when I was thinking about that commitment thing, I was thinking about this love thing, you know, I wanted to kind of make it all mesh together with, with this idea. So if I really want to know his love more, if I really want to serve him as John served him in the right place at the right time without worrying about all the ins and outs, I need to do it with all of you. So I have to believe these foundations, these foundational truths. I have to start here. If I don't start here, I'm not going to end up in the right place. Uh, we're going to finish up here. Um, this is the last verse. We're going to go back to First John. <clears throat> so First John four ten started this all off, and First uh, John four nine is going to finish it. So four ten is this is love. Four nine is. This is how God showed his love among us. Um, He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And after saying all that, the fruition of it all is the cross. You know, the firm foundation, you know, just see that cross lifted up and planted in the ground and Jesus on it. And Jesus looking out and forgiving. He's like, "Ah," you know, Forgive them. They don't know what they do. And then, right before he puts his head down and breathes his last, he says, it is finished. And at that point, that's where we begin. It's not a life of servitude. It's not a life of self-reliance. It's a life that has its foundations on a finished work. So that's what I got.